There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and as always, I am joined by my old friends Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Just to be clear, they're not actually old people. They're just... We've been friends for a long time. Yes. They're older than me, though. I should make that clear. Just a little bit by six eight. months. Yeah, yeah. Then a year not much. for me older. You did tell me last summer at the conference, David, that I don't not even want to know the, what I said. <laughs> <laughs> you did say that you, in soul and spirit, were older than me, and I've held on to that. I said that about myself. Yes. I, was I being? Was I trying to compliment you, or was I talking yeah, myself? No, up? I think you were. Com- I think you were complimenting me. That's oh. how I took it, at least. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. If I have a I love chance it. to interpret something positively towards me, I will. Yeah, I honestly have no idea what I meant at this point. I'm sure I was trying to be nice or something. Hopefully, I wasn't I trying to like puff myself up. Uh, but uh, speaking of puffing ourselves up, um, we have before we get into the show today, um, and we you know, talk about how people can get in touch and everything. We have a group of, I don't really know how to put it other than super fans. Like the Jokos readers group are friends that are like, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't, the, the, so anyway, I'm kind of at a loss for words because they, they knew that the, everything going on with the COVID-19 and, and all that has, you know, impacted our, our business and our finances a little bit. And so they kind of got together and did a, they wanted to help us raise some, some funds and it's incredibly generous and they're doing almost all the work, but you know, they asked us to do some fun stuff. Like, um, we're going to, (laughs) um, if someone wants to, we will leave the voicemail on their phone and we're, you know, we're going to do a zoom lunch where you get (laughs) a couple of you can have lunch with Tim and Heidi and I, as we, you know, talk about nonsense and whatnot. And you, know, you have a chance to choose a book for the show or choose a story or a poem for an episode. There's a bunch of things like that. And um, we're going to uh, post this on the Close Reads newsletter. So if you go to closereads.substack.com uh, or on the, the Instagram page, you'll be able to get access to, to this information. I think we're going to post this probably later this week. But one of the things that they did, Heidi, you can go ahead and text this to Tim because they commissioned... Oh my gosh, I'm so curious right now. They commissioned one of our... Um, the people who works for us, Casey Rufato, she's an artist. She does lino cuts and printmaking and stuff like that. And without us knowing, they she commissioned, uh, or they commissioned Kirsty to do to do this image of the three of us that they made into posters. For- Whoa! So we just sent it to Tim. Tim has never seen it before. They wanted it to be a surprise. Whoa! So it's, so Kirsty did this. Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, I'll let I'll let Tim describe it to you. So it's 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 a woodcut. Is that what it is? A lino cut, yeah. It's not worth And it's but. got, it's the three of us with the Close Reads banner overhead. Heidi in the middle. Gosh, if you're looking, uh, David on the right and me on the left. It's great. I don't even know how to describe it. I had no idea she was so talented. Why have I not seen this from her? It's She's so amazing. good. So we're publishing, She's amazing. we're publishing a book called 30 Poems to Memorize parentheses before it's too late and parentheses. Um, and she, you know, we, we had this idea to, we, like to have her do um, line of cuts of paintings or, or illustrations or whatever of all the, the poets that are in it. And so her line of cuts are actually going to be in the book. And if you have seen the, uh, the page for the close reads retreat that we were going to do on Wendell Berry, or hopefully we are doing at some point, it's just a matter of the date. She had done one for us on Wendell Berry for that event. And so when I saw that, Graham and I were like, you have to do this for the book. So then I guess people saw that she had this, this skill and went to her and said, you need to do this of the, of the three people. It's, I, <laughs> I don't really even know. It, what what the, the Joe Coast people are doing is friendship of the highest order trying to support the show and um they you know they commit they raise some money to to pay for the printing of these posters um and then also um 
they raised some money to pay for the printing of some new t-shirts that Graham designed specifically for this. So you'll see those as well no way. with a kind of special uh, 1990s, 1980s uh, children's literature TV theme. Just put it that way. <laughs> so if you, uh, wow. When you see that, you'll love that. So it's incredibly generous and we're so grateful. And um, yeah, I just wanted to say publicly thank you and you know publicly give Tim a chance to be uh, shocked on air. <laughs> Our favorite thing to do is... It's, sure it's really talk. remarkable. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I just love, the questions? I love, here's three things I love. David's shirt, like that's the, my favorite part. Sweater? Like the striped the, shirt? Yes, yeah. because like you own that and <laughs> I think it's so great. I also love Tim's like collar, the way it's like lying. I think it's yeah, awesome. it's just a mess. mess. Yeah, yeah. Which is and, accurate. Yes, and that's my real cross that she put on my neck that is was taken from a Bolshevik refugee that, and it was sold in Latvia many years later oh, wow. and was given to me as a Christmas present by my best friend. And um, so she put that actual cross on my neck in this picture. So it's just the details amazing and the love that went into this on from so many people. Um, and I finally have a poster. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, I, that's what's Jesse, important right now. So I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jesse Brown asked us to describe the close readers. Yeah. Like there was a handful of questions that she asked, you know, like in Jesse a, spearheaded a lot of it. Yeah. She's, she's incredible. And I don't even know. I mean, she said, describe close reads and then describe basically the close reads listenership. And I don't even know how to describe them. I mean, to, to like, I don't even know what to say even right now. It's, it's the most wonderful group of friends that I've met some of them, but most of them I've not met yet. Yeah. Just online. And they, they like shower us with this, these kindnesses. Like this is another example. Um, and they're thanking us for, you know, this, what we do on clothes. I'm like, Wow. We're the ones like I feel like we should be the ones thanking you guys. I just don't. Yeah. I, I seriously, it makes me really emotional. I'm so touched by like the outpouring of generosity and affection that just seems to like take root in some new way. Like every week, yeah. being on the show, it's yeah. moving. It's special. This is a special community. Yeah, it really is. It's I, I of the many things that I like the most i mean honestly like receiving coffee from a close reader uh just for the sheer kindness of sending coffee from costa rica his family in costa rica said it i just like it fills me with so much delight yeah. the other thing that i love is just that there's this like incredible balance of like inquiry and curiosity and like tough questions about the books that we're reading coupled with this just kindness and generosity and to be part of a community that has both of those things at the same time is like being in heaven. Hmm. You know, I was thinking yesterday about how I, so, so since all this, COVID-19 stuff has been going on. I have sort of distanced myself from social media just for my own mental health. Um, yeah. And I'll try, but I check in on, I don't, I don't get on Facebook or Twitter at all except for work purposes. Um, and by work purposes, I mean to get on the close reads group <laughs> and, you know, post stuff or just check in on what's going on and make sure no one has asked me for something. Um, but I always check in and I, and I genuinely miss the conversation there. Um, but I was, you know, what I check in and, and then I realize, you know what? I'm not needed. <laughs> that community is so... It just so runs great. itself. It's, it runs yeah. itself. People have so many great things to say and there's so much wisdom on it. So, you know, um, you know we love being a part of it and, and we love doing the show and, and all that. But you guys, you know, all of you who are listening and talking on there, like you're the heartbeat of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, truly like, you know, people ask me for stuff. I can get information. I can send links, you know. We'll, we'll produce the podcast and stuff. But that community online and, and especially in the... The Joko's super group um, that doesn't need us to be 
you know, what it is. You guys make that what it is, um, right. just as much as this podcast does. And, and, you know, we love, like I said, we love producing the podcast and, you know, we're here for you and, and all that. Uh, we're going to keep producing content, but, but, you know, that thing is taken, that group has taken on a life of its own that is independent, maybe not independent of us, but yeah. despite it's theirs, despite cool. it's y'all's. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And we're not even invited. Yeah, and yeah, we're not even invited in the super group. The super group, yeah. Uh, I said super fans earlier because that's what Jesse likes to call it. She says they call themselves, but she, or at least she calls them super fans. But I do, I do. You know, I realized this week that um, you know it's a good thing that I'm married because you know I was telling Bethany about all this, and she's gonna, you know, this might be one of those things she gets mad at me for saying, but you know, she's like, she she like rolls her eyes at it all. She's like, why, why, why would anybody want to post her? <laughs> I mean, she says it in a very joking way. You know, she's not being serious or being mean or whatever. Right. It's like, she just like rolls her eyes. And I, maybe 90% of her rolling her eyes at me is just to keep me humble, you know? Uh, <laughs> but you know, like, you know, just when, you know, someone does something nice, it's like... I said that thing about the group because in some ways it is easy to be like, maybe we're doing something really great. But it's, you know, what we're doing is we're talking about books and we're doing things we love anyway. And, yeah. you know... As Tim said, we feel like we should be thanking you guys. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, y'all are incredible. The listeners that we have are so engaged and so kind and um, wouldn't trade you know, the 10,000 of you or whatever the number is, depending on the episode, for like 100,000 that listen to some other podcasts but aren't as generous and kind people, you know? So mm-hmm. True. I, David, True. can I say one more thing before we talk about Anne? I, I took a... Um, class in rhetoric at the University of Oregon a few years ago. And the best definition of rhetoric that I heard in all of these different kind of like discussions about what Plato thought and what Aristotle thought was from a contemporary scholar. And she said, she basically flipped rhetoric on its head. So instead of like Aristotle, Plato, you know, rhetoric is about the various powers of persuasion coming from the speaker. This scholars said rhetoric is actually the proximity that the listener, like the fellow, the the conversation partner puts himself in regard to the speaker. Mm. And that stuck with me so much. And I think so, so rather than like the power of the person who's doing the speaker, it's the willingness of the person or the people who are listening to put themselves in close proximity with the speaker so that they understand and engage and have sympathy with. And I was like, wow, that really fits close reads. Mm. I mean, I, I, hopefully we have thoughtful things to say every once in a while and we're inspired <laughs> yeah. by these incredible books that we're reading. But I'm just going to try to echo your point, David. I just really feel like the proximity with which this community has stood toward us, like that they've walked closer to us makes the show just makes the show. Yeah. I got a message, a couple messages from people, you know, after I, I brought the daily poem back, I'd been off kind of on a hiatus for about a month while I was trying to figure out, you know, how to do it and get my life in some semblance, like figure out what my new routine was going to be for this little while here. Um, and then I got a couple messages from people saying, we're so glad you brought it back. And at first I was like, that's great. They, you know, people are really excited for it. And then I got, I got a message that was very kind, but it was something like, you know, this is a time when of all times we need to be reading poetry. And I felt a little bit, you know, chastened, <laughs> like, you know what, that person's right. Like, you know, there's so much, what I'm trying to say is there's so much wisdom out there. And I feel not just that we are able to offer, you know, hopefully encouraging or thoughtful things about the books and the literature and all that, but there's so much wisdom from people who are causing us to learn things as well. And I know that all the time, you know, you just see it on a Q&A episode. So often the three of us talk about how, well, whatever this person said was so interesting and it caused us, it caused us to change what we were thinking about something. So it's not just that people are kind and generous, but that people out there are genuinely thoughtful as well and participating in the conversations that we're having and inspiring the conversations that we're having. So that's the part that in addition to the things we're saying, that part also has stood out to me over the last several mm-hmm. months and weeks. So anyway, we are here to talk about Anne Green Gables. Um, Heidi, do you want to add anything else? Tim and I just got to, you know, wax, wax, you know, in, wax ineloquently for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just echo that. It's remarkable. And I've, I think when, what is one of the most special things about the community 
with the loyalty and the generosity is also how how much of a reading community it is for us as well. I I learn mm-hmm. so much from these people and think so much more deeply as a result of the conversations that we have. They it it isn't that there's the three of us and then this fan group. It's that we are all in a long-term conversation about books. And and the longer that this group goes on, it becomes a group of friends, a group of reading friends. And mm-hmm. I, I it's it's incredibly unique and special. I, I really truly don't know anything like it. Yeah, I mean, I'm so sure there are other groups. Yeah, there are probably other groups that are that are like it, but you know, this is it's unique in our in my life for probably sure. Probably not. This is the yeah. one. No, I'm just kidding. But. <laughs> no, listen. There's probably a Star Trek yeah. group out there that is super close and very tight, very tight, and you know, I'm sure it's out. I'm sure it's out there. I don't, you know, the internet is a big place. It's a big place. That is that is the truth. Well, we are here to talk about uh, chapters 28 through 32 of Anne of Green Gables. If you want to become a part of this conversation, you can head over to Facebook, search for the for Close Reads in the search bar, and the discussion group will pop up. Click that Join button, and we will welcome you with open arms, as will all these other people we're talking about. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram, at Close Reads Pods, and then we have the newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And if you'd like to email us directly, you can email us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. If you want to uh, get our bonus episode and support the show a little bit, you can go over to patreon.com slash closereads. And uh, there's some sweet show swag there, as well as the bonus episodes, which are currently ongoing on Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Um, new episode of that is actually going up today. Uh, Tim and Heidi had a I wasn't there, but apparently they had a great conversation. So we'll, you know, they say it was good. So until we hear otherwise from the listeners, we'll go with that. <laughs> um, but let's talk about Anne of Green Gables. Uh, we're nearing the end. Can, next week is actually the, the the episode where we talk about the final chapters, the uh, denouement, the conclusion of Lucy Maud Montgomery's novel. And then the week after that, we will do a Q&A. So get your questions ready and we'll try to answer some of them. But here we have the, you know, this section began with what Heidi says is her favorite um, uh, episode, the favorite little story within the story where Anne is, you know, playing Elaine, right? And she's, mm-hmm. her boat springs a leak and she's rescued by the gallant knight Gilbert, who she then rejects and a merry, not so merry war, you know, ensues. And then they go and they uh, study their test and several, a couple of years pass. And, uh, and at the end of it, she has passed the test. So, um, to me, this is a section where the story, for some reason, the story begins to deepen. Maybe that she's maturing a little bit and there's a sort of nostalgia that's setting in, a sort of sadness that's setting into the novel. And um, Heidi, I want to give you a chance to talk about the, the boat springing a leak section. But before we do that, I want to ask Tim whether you feel that same way, Tim. Having read this for the first time, did this section feel like the book was changing for you? For sure. And I'll say I was aided in that conviction because I'm listening to it on Audible and the woman who's reading it, it's a really excellent performance. She actually changes Anne's voice a little bit in, I think, oh, I think it was chapter 31. Like There's a section, there's a paragraph, I should have highlighted it, um, that talks about kind of how Anne is talking less and Marilla asks her why. And she says um, that she prefers to kind of like think, keep her thoughts inside. So anyway, during that section, the actual voice of the woman playing Anne drops just a little bit. It has a more mature quality for it. And I think I would have picked up on it anyway, because of that paragraph where Lucy Maud Montgomery makes it really clear, like, yeah, there's this been this maturation process in Anne. Um, but I was aided by that audible, that audible performance. Does does so one of the things you talked about is how much delight you took in in Anne's sort of story and her her growth and her adventures and her personality. Yeah. Does the you know, her growing up and this sort of nostalgia and this you know, bit of sort of sadness in her becoming a young adult. Does that uh-huh. change your experience with the book? Does it make you delight in it less? Well, it makes me sad. I mean, it makes me, it makes me sad. I mean, I, I have this feeling. I, um, when Gutenberg graduated a class, 
you know, this Gutenberg College was such a small place that we knew, the professors knew our students really well. And we would have a graduation ceremony and then we would have a reception afterwards. And it was, it was, people would make a joke that every year I would go to the reception and I would kind of duck out early. And people would say like, where did you go? You know, I would say my goodbyes to the students and then I would leave early and people would say, what, where did you go? Why did you leave early? And I was like, I'm so sad. I don't want to, I'm just so sad that everybody's growing up and leaving. And it's what we are here for is to, you know, help them move on past Gutenberg. Yeah. But it's a sad, it's a very sad moment. I'm sure it's like what parents feel when their kids leave the home, you know, they go off to college or they move out for the first time. It's just unhappy. And I feel like that's beginning with Anne, especially with the prospect of maybe she's going to go to school if she does well on her exams. Gosh, it's all about a change in it. Yeah. It affected me. I was not, uh, I was, I was sad about it. So Heidi, it seems to me then that this famous boat springing leak scene <laughs> uh, that you, we should probably come up with a better name for it than the boat springing a leak scene, but the famous boat springing <laughs> leak scene, uh, it, it, um, it actually seems to come at this transitional point, you know, like it's mm-hmm. in some ways to be the, the last childlike adventure episode that she has um, as, she, as it leads into these, these, you know, this quick passage of time where she's growing up and she's changing. Do you think that has anything to do with why um, you particularly love it? Oh, that's a good question. It probably does, but I hadn't put that together before. I think it is a transitional scene. Um, There's, there's a symbolism to it. There's this, objective correlative of kind of the boat of her romanticism springing a leak and she has to actually um, live in reality. (laughs) Um, uh, So I'm sure that that does also her resistance, her spurning of Gilbert, the true knight um, is a, I mean, this is a low point for her. This is a, this is a flaw and Anne, that's not delightful. Hmm. And, and I think that's important to the story too. That's interesting that you connect the sort of, um, she has to live in reality and the sort of, how did you put it? Like the, her romance was sort of being... Shot Spring through. in a leak? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Shot through with yeah. reality and then began to leak. Yeah. So it, you know, it's interesting that you say that. And then in that moment, she then rejects the sort of, the true knight. So, you know, she would have always read all these stories where, you know, the damn, you have this damsel in distress and the true knight comes along and uh, rescues her and, you know, happily ever after and so forth. And when she is in the moment when she needs that, her pride gets in the way of her being able to accept that, that night, Mm -hmm. you know, so do you think that, that this is a point where the book is saying what it really thinks about that romance or is it just that Anna, that, it's truly an example of her, like her, her pride more than anything. That's a really good question. One thing I like about Montgomery is that her, she, she does, I think, a good job, particularly in this book of showing versus telling about Gilbert and Anne. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more as, as Anne develops. I mean, this exact same thing happens in a different context um, later on in her life in which she continues to uh, hold on to her romantic ideal versus welcoming as a friend and then as a lover, this, this, her true knight. And this plays out over and over again in her life. Uh, and when she has an opportunity to humble herself and let go of pride and her vanity and her false idealism and actually embrace the true reality to become real like the Velveteen Rabbit, right? And she she does reject that in a more serious tone later. And and Montgomery kind of puts it a little bit more in our face what she's doing than she does here. In some ways this is a, still some foreshadowing um, of the future, but it's still very real to Anne. Um, and I just, I love the fact that he literally rescues her 
when she's in this state of dreamy abstraction and stuck in her head, Hmm. and then he comes and saves her and she can't see it still. Mm. Yeah. Um, And it's funny and charming, but it's also like real. That's serious. What what do you mean that she can't see it? She can't see... um that she is stuck in this world of abstraction or she can't see the good in Gilbert or, or what do you mean? Both. I guess I mean both, but I was specifically talking about, about Gilbert. And then later Jane says to her, Oh, Anne, how splendid of him. Why it's so romantic. Of course you'll speak to him after this. Of course I won't flashed Anne with a momentary return of her old spirit. And I don't ever want to hear the word romantic again, Jane Andrews. (laughs) And, and that's funny. Uh, and and at this point, there's not much at stake, but there comes a time when there is. And Anne is still, she she says, I don't want you to mention the word romantic again when something actually romantic has happened to her. Yeah. And Anne really can't see it because she's stuck in her head holding on to her own idea of what romanticism is. When it provokes literally just sprung a leak. Yeah, so... It's, it's actually, I mean, it is a funny, charming scene and we don't, we don't have to read too much into it, but it's on a craftsman level. It really is kind of brilliant. Like she's in this boat, it springs a leak and that's a very symbolic kind of thing. Well, I would it's love, really great. I would love to have been able to talk to Lucy Montgomery about how she crafted this book because, mm. you know, like, I wonder if she had a notebook she had this character in mind and then say she had a notebook. Did they have notebooks back then? Let's say she had a notebook. Maybe she was carving on tree bark. Um, and she was like <laughs> making a list of all the adventures Anne could have. And I wonder if she actually thought this one should happen when she's younger and I'll make her, I'll make it much more of a, you know, 10 year old type adventure. And then this one should happen when she's 14 or something. And it should be a transitional one. And so I wonder, I would, I would love to know if she actually planned out for this one to be the transitional moment into where, where for us as readers it's the last sort of childlike adventure and where the, the true conflict with Gilbert meets ahead in that moment. I, I just would be very curious to, yeah. to know how she thought about that. Because in the movie, you, Tim, you might even remember this from, from uh, all the times you watched the movie by osmosis. Um, <laughs> did, uh, in the movie, didn't they make the moment where he rescues her the moment where she finds out that she passed the test. Because in the book, she gets a letter or something. But in the movie, doesn't Gilbert tell her that they passed? And then she says, oh, well, you obviously came first. And he says, no, we tied. Um, I, feel, I feel like the book combined the two scenes in, into this. I don't, do you know, Heidi? I don't. I do know. Those are two different. They are two different scenes. Okay. She's that. He tells her that, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, what I find interesting is that you've conflated them. Like to you, they're like your memory of it is that that's kind of the same moment it has the same weight of meaning to it, right? But in the book, in the movie, though, it is Gilbert who tells her, though, right, that she passed. Yes. Well, he tells her that she wins the Avery Scholarship. Is that later? Yes. Okay. Wait, she wins the Avery Scholarship? <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I'm, I'm way off. Um, never mind. Maybe we can talk about that. Let's move on now. WUT? What? I don't know what you heard. But you know what? Honestly, I was like, I've already had this thought when she finds out via the newspaper, um, I was like, how are we going to afford this? We can't afford it. <laughs> Matthew will find a way. Matthew will find a way. But now I know the Avery scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> well, I screwed that up for you. So, uh, really, Heidi was the one that told you, but you know. it was me. I'm blocking it from my memory. And- said the wrong things this girl no i literally just said the wrong things i said i said like literally the wrong thing was true um (laughs) now i guess i need to go watch the uh the movie again um tim do you think you'll watch this movie again the 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 miniseries now that you read once you finished the book i kind of have this daydream that when i'm next in atlanta i'll like get my sister to watch one of the episodes with me I, because I, I've been telling her offline, I've been like, Chris, we're doing Anne of Green Gables. And I remember 
like stumbling downstairs and, you know, seeing you watch this show and rolling my eyes. And now I'm like just so enjoying this book. And she's, she says, I'm so sorry that I subjected you to Anne of Bryn Gables. And I was like, like, I didn't subject you to a hundred Chicago Bulls games in the 1990s. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that knife cut both ways, girl. Yeah. That's called being brother and sister. Exactly. Is she younger or older than you? Younger by two years. Okay. Oh, okay. But more yeah. talented, professional, capable in, I think, every way. Yeah, every way. She must be pretty talented then. Nice reply. Mm. Well done. Well done. All right. Well, let's, let's keep talking about Andrew Green Gables um, since that's what the people are here to listen to. Um, where were we? <laughs> so the, this change that's taken place in yeah. Anne, um, and we, I mean, the big question for most of this section is whether or not she is going to pass her exams and whether her cohort is going to, they're going to pass their exams. And that was a, that was a great section that I loved the section. We get to know the personalities of, the, of her cohort a little bit better. Wait, by the way, I had this question. I'm going to derail us for a second. Um, Go ahead. So when Diana finds out, so there's this scene where um, Anne finds out that Miss Stacy has asked her to be part of this. I'm calling it a cohort. You know, like it's a grad school thing. Um, part of this cohort that meets after classes end and they're going to prepare to take this exam. And Anne is heartbroken that she and Diana are going to be separated. And I'm, I was reading it and I thought, gosh, when is the jealousy going to kick in from Diana? Because this is now like a rivalry and no, no jealousy kicked in. And I thought, man, maybe I'm just doing this sort of, I had this sort of masculine expectation that any sort of event like this would cause a rivalry. And I, maybe I just have like this very masculine vision of friendship. I'm sure that I, I do. Like, I think one of the oldest books that human beings have a copy of is begins with a male rivalry that turns into friendship. The Epic of Gilgamesh is this battle between Gilgamesh and Enkidu they can't defeat each other. So what happens? They become best friends. And like, it's the story of their friendship and, you know, the, the loss of Enkidu. And I think of so many, so many friendships that I've had, like begin with just sort of like a spark of competition, whether it be verbal competition or athletic competition or what have you. And then it gradually moves into like this deep respect that, becomes this bond. And I thought, I thought, yeah, Tim, this is not the story that you're reading. This is Diana and, and Anne are, this is not the kind of ground that they're walking on. But was I, was I the only person that, who expected that there might be some sort of like a little rivalry that blossomed between Diana and Anne? I really want to know, Heidi, what you think. Can you remember back to an early reading. I read this book before the girl drama years. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. When I hit the girl drama years, I was floored by it. Floored by what? The drama. Like I was, I really was. When I when I hit like those the fifth, sixth grade years. The drama when, you were living through, not the drama in the book. Yeah. That may, okay, yeah, yeah. Because I I thought that my friendships were going to be like Anne and Diana's. And so I remember, I specifically, I specifically remember standing on the playground and a girl having just been really cruel to me that I thought was my friend and I wanting to cry because, and thinking to myself, I thought we were going to be like Aww, Anne and Diana. Yeah. Oh. And, so there was this expectation 
that was formed. Mm. And, and I think every girl kind of goes into those years. I, I don't want to speak for every girl. That's probably, I think most women I know remember those years very vividly. And there is a sense of competition. Usually it's competition over different things. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily always who gets on the basketball team or whatever, um, or who gets the best grades. Um, there's kind of a different currency in feminine circles than there is in masculine ones from what I can tell, but it's there and it's just as cruel and just as vicious and just as front and center. Mm. Um, and it is left out of the and books. And I think that's one of the ways in which it's maybe least realistic or true to childhood. Yeah, I was going to ask but you one of the ways that it's, I think really sweet to read. Yeah. So, so then it being left out, do you think, that it's just like Lucy Maud Montgomery was like, I just don't care about that kind of thing. I want to leave it out. Do you think it, things were just different in the early 1900s? Do you, do you think that there was something in the water in Prince Edward Island? Do you, or do you think that like for her, it was that these two characters are of a certain sort of character that they would be able to persist in their friendship and w- and that jealousy would not set in, like in terms of the characters of Anne and Diana, that that's that they're so committed to one another, and that their personalities and their their character are such that that would not be a problem, and thus it wasn't necessary to put in the story. Or do you think that she was trying to make some kind of like a a point or about things being more pleasant, or was it just truly not as bad in you know nineteen nineteen ten in Prince Edward Island, right? I don't know the answer to that. I thought about that, and I think that this to me is where the question of escapism comes in the most is the dynamic of the relationships uh, at this stage of life. You know, we talked about whether or not Anne's imagination was kind of an escapist trope in the novel. And I said no to that. Um, But I do often wonder if it is, if if it in in the friendships between the girls and the story, if that's kind of a bit of wish fulfillment on on Montgomery's part, mm. um, and just she is portraying an idealized childhood at this point. I think that you know the 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 petty, the meanness, and the pettiness are like these outsider characters. Mm-hmm. That you know, Gertie Pie and Josie um, are petty and they gossip and blah, 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 but not these friends of Anne's, not Ruby and Jane and Diana. These, these, you know, these girls are in a sense, I think idealized. Um, And I don't know that I think that that's a bad thing because I do think this is a book that is attempting to portray an idealized, intentionally idealized vision of childhood, a what could be kind of vision of childhood. And, and I think that there's something really wholesome and healthy about that, but I'm not sure. I think that it's super realistic Mm -hmm. for an 11, for 11 year old girls. So then does that mean that, that what we're getting here is a transitional point out of that sort of idealized, what could be, you know, wish fulfillment section into a more, uh, a sort of more realistic approach to, to storytelling into these characters or does that, no, is that wish yeah. sort of pers- persist through the other books? It remains. There's not, there's, there's a very idealized vision for female friendship in these novels. And like I said, I don't know that I think that that's bad. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't know that I think childhood stories need to be, super every single one of them needs to be realistic i don't really want to see you know diana stomping out the door and saying you get all the attention everybody likes you more than me and you're smarter than me and you have ever you know like that's or or creating a gossip campaign against Anne, right like which would be worse in some way yes so i did there is female friendships are very idealized in these novels all the way through and i kind of like it that way I'm thinking, so a more realistic way to handle it while retaining the idealism could be something like this. Um, Diana is not selected for 
the after school studying. And she, because her friendship with Anne is so crucial, she goes to Anne and she, you know, voices a complaint against her, or she, you know, just expresses how disappointed she is and how much she feels left out. And then the two girls kind of patch it up. They talk it out and they patch it up and their friendship moves forward. Heidi, do you think that if some episode like that was included, that the kind of, um, that the moral power of the story, because I think it is, it's not just a story of delight and of Green Gables, but it does seem like it's also, it is kind of a moral tale. I mean, I think Anne is careful to kind of like warn the reader. That's not really the point of this story. Just like, it's not the point of my stories. Yeah. I kind of, I have a moral in the end. Um, but nevertheless, I do think that there's a kind of like a moral ideal aspect of this book. And if there was like a little bit of like realistic um, psychology between the two girls and they actually, instead of just, instead of Lucy Maud Montgomery glossing over this potential problem of jealousy, instead of if she actually had the two girls argue with it. Do you think it would diminish the kind of moral power of the story that we're reading? Um, I think it would change the character of Anne and Diana. I, I don't know that I, it's a good, it's a good question. I'm not sure exactly how to answer it because it's so firmly fixed in my mind as what it is. Yeah. Um, I I guess I just have to answer it from my preference in the sense that I love the idealized vision for relationship in this novel. Um, whether it would be the moral power be diminished in some ways, I think it would because one of the whole points of this is what if we really lived like this? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a great depth of sorrow that and loss that comes into Anne's life, into all of these characters' lives as they mature and become adults. Um, and and yet one of the anchors for them is community, faith, and friendship. And and so to kind of make to weaken those ties is is to me equivalent of saying, what if um you know, would it diminish the power of the story if Jaber Crow decided to move to New York City and start a barber shop there because he could make more money? Yeah. Yes, because yeah. that's the whole point of the book. Right. The whole point of the book is the power of place. And in in the Anne of Green Gables series, the whole point of the book is and I is the redemptive potential for community, for relationship, for faith, for an ordinary life. And, and so it, it intentionally is, is portraying an idealized vision of human relationship the same way that Wendell Berry is intentionally portraying an idealized that's with great. ordinary I, kind of problems of life, the small town American life. Yeah, that's a great answer. So, but there's also this kind of um, uh, I don't want, I don't know exactly what the word is, but you know how it teases the concept, um, like sort of makes fun of the concept of lessons being learned throughout the whole book. There's all these scenes all the time where mm-hmm. you know some lessons going to be learned from the book or whatever, or from something Anne's doing or reading, and then you, you get this section or a little paragraph in the section that we read for this this episode where it's at the end of the Boat Springs Leaks scene. And um, Anne says, I think my prospects are becoming sensible or brighter now than ever. And Marilla says, I don't see how. And then Anne explains, I've learned a new and valuable lesson today. Ever since I came to Green Gables, I've been making mistakes. And each mistake has helped cure me of some great shortcoming. The affair of the amethyst brooch, brooch cured me of meddling with things that didn't belong to me. The haunted woods mistake cured me of letting my imagination run away with me. The liniment cake mistake cured me of carelessness in cooking. 
dyeing my hair cured me of vanity. I never think about my nose and hair and nose now. Well, at least very seldom. And today's mistake is going to cure me of being too romantic. I have come to the conclusion that it is no use trying to be romantic in Avonlea. So on the one hand, it's like a humorous sort of, you know, an anecdote. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I'm curious if like, is it, how, how does, how does, do you think given all the things that we're talking about, how do you think that the book's approach to the idea of like, not, not necessarily moralizing, but the lessons that people can get from reading uh, play out? Um, I just said a sentence. Try that, not, try that again, David. Well, I'm just I'm thinking sure about, Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not sure that I follow either. That's why I'm asking your question. Okay. So you, we were talking about this idea that what Lucy Mon Montgomery is offering is an idealized, idealized life. And that, um, that it might be something worth pursuing to some degree or another. And it's, you know, there are models in it that are valuable. Is that what you're saying, Heidi? At least partly. Okay. So on the other hand, the book seems to sort of make fun of things like Anne's romanticism. And it seems to make, you know, it celebrates her imagination, but also sort of teases her about it, if you will. Um, And then it also makes fun of, maybe a little bit more uh, directly, the idea of moralizing stories. Well, at the same time, having Anne constantly talking, well, not constantly, but talking here at least about the idea that she's learning all these lessons. So are, is she saying that these lessons that she's learning are part of an idealized, that idealized way of life, that in, a, in this idealized way of life, these experiences that you have lead to lessons learned? Or is she subverting that and saying that like, it's, that, that's not really how life works, that's not really how these stories work. Like the idea of lessons and morals is is uh, not nonsense, but not the whole, not really the point of the experiences that we have. Hmm. So the, I guess the concept of morals and lessons is that, how does that factor into this concept of the world that Lucy Modern Montgomery is creating being an idealized world? Did that make more sense, Tim? Right. I think so. We can move on. <laughs> no, I think it's a good question. That's why we're taking a minute to think about it. I do think that Montgomery's romantic capital R romantic vision of the world is very intentionally cultivated and intentionally portrayed um, in the same way that, and, and, and it is in many ways analogous to Wendell Berry and uh, in, in the same way that the, the Port William life is like true to life that could happen, but it's also not the common American small town experience. It's what could be. And, and we, those who love Barry become so attached to it that they mm. create that, right? They cultivate it. They're like, I'm not just going to go move to a small town and, and, and just wait for it to do its work on me. Mm. You have to build it. That's a life you have to build intentionally. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen to you. And that I think is the same invitation that Anne that that Montgomery is is issuing in the Anne of Green Gables series is if you just move to Prince Edward Island and adopt an orphan, you're not going to live this life. Okay, or <laughs> like, if you're an orphan, you're not <laughs> with a good imagination. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. But if you if you have a vision for the transformation of imagination for the redemptive power of relationship for what it means to live in a community and live in an ordinary life. Even if you're an extraordinary person, you can, you can build that. That's something you can cultivate the same way you cultivate a garden, the same way you cultivate a farm, the same way you, you, but it takes work. It's not something that happens to you and it, and it comes out of a vision. And I think this is fiction that's inviting people to do that. And in that sense, there is a moral, there is a moralism to it. There is an, but I don't think she wants it to be just escapism the same way Wendell Berry doesn't want you to read his books and, and treat it as escapism. He's, he's saying that I know this is hard work. It's worth doing. Yeah. Hmm. yeah you know, there, for me, the, probably the, the real only dissonance I have with this book that I've been trying to work through is this question that I'm asking, because there's the different commentaries mm-hmm. on the, on the concept of lessons learned in stories and moralism. Like you'll have, you know, different characters are saying different things about it from Rachel to, 
Miss Allen or whatever to the teachers to, to the way Anne thinks about them thinks about them themselves. And I've been trying to jive this, you know, this idea of to 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 look at all these stories for their like to look at any story for its moral lesson is a sort of idealism. It's like mm-hmm. kind of that's it's a it's it's a sort of um because it's suggesting that you know this thing has something for all people to learn that can help people change their lives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's a sort of like I don't I don't mean idealism in necessarily in a negative way, but that's a sort of idealism about the nature of stories, right? And mm-hmm. so I've been trying to, but but like I also find that this book has a has treated the concept in a number of different ways, and it's hard for me to track exactly what the book is saying about all that. Because um, I really like what you're saying about the idea that this is an ideal an aspirational way of life, right? That with a, with a little bit of intentionality, you can pursue parts of it and, and then perhaps achieve some element of it, although not all of it. Um, but I've been trying to, yeah, I don't know. That's just been a point of dissonance, which is why I can't explain what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I, I had this thought. I wonder if you guys can help me kind of tease this out. Part of my enjoyment of this book is that I think that Lisa Maud Montgomery has this kind of, um, she does not fear flux and change. There's a, I mean, I'll just say, I kind of probably have a prejudice that I've tried to kind of rid myself from that, um, maturity or adulthood is this sort of fixed state that, we're all trying to reach. It's like the ideal that we're trying to reach. Um, but it's part of kind of like growing in wisdom is recognizing, well, no, and yes, we, we have an ideal and there's like a mature state that we want to achieve a state of wisdom and virtue, but there's also just a joy to be had in the present state that one is in. And so mm. it, this episode from Anne, it, it's sad that that Anne is growing up, and so it's it's so it, it, it makes me celebrate the fact that she was younger and that she was um, just full of energy and a little bit out of control, but she just brought so much color and life to Avonlea. And that was worth celebrating in and of itself. Mm. But there's this other aspect of her, which is, yeah, she has to grow up. We want her to grow up. We want her to be mature and wise. And we don't want her to have to kind of like learn the same lessons that cause her pain. We don't want her to have to learn them over and over and over. And so to kind of be able to embrace that there's this tension in every human life between like just a the present state of maturity and all the foibles that go along with, let me say it a different way, the present state of kind of immaturity, of just youthfulness, mm-hmm. that there are so, there's so many joys associated with that. Like I think of my God kids and my friends, the Maedas, they have like seven kids and their kids are like all across the spectrum of the ages and they, they're delightful. From the youngest to the oldest, they're delightful. Um, and they're not just the youngest of them, adults in waiting. You know, that's, that's not who they are. They're actually part of the joy of being around them is that they're young and they're different and they have energy and they're learning and they're inventive and they have all these things that oftentimes ebbs away during adulthood. Yeah. And to be able to kind of celebrate, I think this book celebrates both that Anne is growing up and she has a trajectory and she's learning from it, but it also celebrates the fact that her youthfulness was like a balm to Marilla, to Matthew, to basically everybody she comes in contact with. So what you're describing there, I think is helping me figure out what my problem was is because so the scene that I just read where she kind of distills the lessons of all these scenes that we got in the book, it seems to me to oversimplify and diminish what you're talking, the the sort of bomb that was her, 
her imagination because it says basically Anne saying all the stuff that I went through, you know, that we're, that that you're saying rightly was her was was the bomb for the community, like for for Matthew and Marilla. You know, her imagination brought a sort of healing, but here yeah. Anne distills all those adventures into the lessons she learned from them. And what I can't figure out is 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 Anne's distillation doing that? Is that her trying to grow up? And that, that, that sometimes when we're growing up, we look at the things that we did wrong and we 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 turn them into more less moral lessons, or is the book yeah. distilling that? And diminishing what what has what has been for a bomb so long. That's into, a great question. Into the, and that's where my dissonance is coming up in the questions that I'm asking oh, because it was like moderately disturbing that makes to me. A lot of sense. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really figure oh. out why. And so here on the show, I'm doing that out loud. But the way you put it, that Tim, the, the concept that for so long this young girl was this healing agent in the community, and yeah. certainly in Matthew and Marilla's lives. It was a bomb, as you said, um, and and then she looks at those adventures, and the only thing she has to say about them now is, you know, she basically looks at them as negative things that that she had to go through to learn these lessons. But they weren't negative things. The maybe the individual moments themselves were a little negative, but when you look at them as a whole, Marilla herself expresses that she's going to miss those things. Yeah, you know, fundamentally positive things, like at their core, they're inherently good events that happened even if they were born out of her mischievous imagination. Because it's not like we're talking about how she poisoned anybody. Well, although she did kind of. <laughs> but it's not like they right. were actually like, you know, there weren't immoral things that she then learned a lesson and became a better human being. They were right. like the, the, uh, the actions of an over-imaginative girl who got into a little bit of trouble. You know, that's, there's a big difference there. And then those things get distilled into lessons. And that, that was, that's sort of, disturbing for me so is yeah and then back to my question is the book saying that or is this the way what Aunt maturity is doing for Anne? and either way it's sad <laughs> right yeah. there's a third way but she does continue to have all of those things as character flaws that add nuance into the books and i and it's funny that you're saying that because I've always just kind of skimmed over that as Anne just talking the way she does. Like I've never taken that scene that you just read as a thesis statement of any kind or a kind of a, a wrap up of the lessons of the book. I, I, even as a child, like I never moralized that. I just saw it as like, Anne again, just, talking and um kind of in a silly endearing way saying something that she's trying to to work her way through right Mm. and um, it's a bad job of reading by me is what you're saying no i don't (laughs) think it's a bad job of reading by you but i don't think that the story as a whole treats that as some kind of wrap-up of her um you know Put it, putting a little bow on all of the lessons she's learned. But I do think it's likely, and you saying this illuminates this for me in a way I haven't, seen, I haven't paid attention to. I think it's likely that those anecdotes were intended, you know, those were beads on a string intended to kind of bring to the reader's attention uh, an aspect of Anne and encapsulated in this chapter. She is careless. And I'll put that in the Liniment Cake episode. I want my readers to know that. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and so that, that does make sense to me that, that each of those chapters kind of deals with a different flaw in Anne yeah. as, as something that she's learning. Yeah. Um, but as we know, at this point in the novel, she is still vain. She still has a bad temper. Um, yeah. She is still careless and abstracted and dreamy and too romantic and, self-indulgent and and all of those things yeah so she didn't really learn her lessons so in some ways though would you agree that it does seem like you know marilla is basically saying why don't you grow up or when will you ever grow up let's just put it that way and Anne is basically saying well look i have learned these lessons therefore i'm growing up so maybe it's just that Anne, in her mind being immature she thinks of maturity as the like a list of lessons you learn yeah yes yes so okay all right Maybe, so yeah, I just was doing a bad job of reading. You're you're right. 
or David, maybe you, if you were seeing in the end of the book that possibly the book was going to say, oh, guess what? We're, it's a, it, this story is a moral tale after all. You thought it was about the delight of this young orphan who's come to a stodgy town in a stodgy family, and she brightened the place up. That's what you thought you were reading, but you're actually reading a moral tale. I think that would be a legitimate complaint against the book. I don't think that's what the book is going to do in the end. That's yeah, my well, hunch. I, I, right. I'm not necessarily complaining about the book. I'm just saying, for me, there was a dissonance in what it was. There is a dissonance. In yeah. the way that it was talking or thinking about the idea of morals and lessons and I see. correlation to maturity. I'm not necessarily, I'm not trying, uh, far be it for me to accuse Lucy Montgomery of not knowing what she's doing. Um, but I'm not, so that's not at all. I'm not trying to say it's a flaw in the book. It's just that, you know, as a reader, it was a dissonance that you were helping me work out on the air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we should probably start wrapping up. Um, do we want to, do either of you have any passages or final comments that you want to offer before we dive into this, this last section um, uh, for next week? I'll say two things. I am sad that the book is coming to a close. This book has really grown on me. And I'm really curious if we're going to have any sort of uh, resolve with guilt or if that's going to be put off to a later book. I'm very curious about that. I think we'll get something. I just don't know how, like how final the resolution will be. Heidi. Um, I want to comment on her relationship with Miss Stacy, which is a big, like there's a lot in this book about education. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, you know, there's actually just so many, there really are so many layers to this book. Um, about people, about relationships, about what it means to love. And one of the contemplations, one of the threads that runs through this book is education. We had Mr. Phillips, who is a bad teacher. And now you have Miss Stacy, who is a good teacher. Um, even in the Lily Maid scene, one of the things I love about it is their attachment to the Do you mean colon. the boat springs a leak scene? Yes, the boat springs a leak scene. Yes. I, I said it wrong. See, we're, we both read poorly. The, the Lily Maid scene? Um, that's probably the actual name that it should be called, but I, I'm Boat Springs and League. I'm going to Boat Springs and League just for the rest of my life. I'm All right. My- well, let me, Logan, please let me say that over again. Oh. The, um, in the Boat Springs League scene, <laughs> um, sweet show swag. <laughs> All hard to say. Yeah. Um, they are so attached to this poem. And it makes the comment about how the poem has been parsed and yep. you know almost to death, and yet still it has captured their imagination with the characters, um, and, uh, and and that's kind of the last vestige left of the true imaginative spark that comes through poetry, um, and so there's there's just all of these different threads that have to do with what it means to educate a soul. Um, through reading and through nature and through imagination and play acting and all those things that in this particular section that we read were, were, we're getting some commentary on it, not just the, the story of it happening, but we're seeing how it's actually forming Anne in her soul. Um, and I, I really like that. There's in a, one of the chapters, sorry, I don't know which one it was. Um, it says, but it was a jolly, busy, happy, swift-flying winter. Schoolwork was as interesting, class rivalry as absorbing as of yore. New worlds of thought, feeling, and ambition. Fresh, fascinating fields of unexplored knowledge seemed to be opening out before Anne's eager eyes. Hills peeped o'er hill and Alps on Alps arose. Much of this was due to Miss Stacy's tactful, careful, broad-minded guidance. She led her class to think and explore and discover for themselves and encouraged straying from the old beaten paths to a degree that quite shocked Mrs. Lind and the school trustees, who viewed all innovations on established methods rather dubiously. Apart from her studies, Anne's ex- Anne expanded socially from Marilla, mindful of the Spencer Vale's doctor's dictum, no longer vetoed occasional outings. The debating club flourished and gave several concerts. There were one or two parties almost verging on grown-up affairs. There were sleigh drives and skating frolics galore. 
between times and grew, shooting up so rapidly that Marilla was astonished one day when she was when they were standing side by side to find the girl was taller than her than herself. Why, Anne, how you've grown, she said almost unbelievingly. A sigh followed on the words. Marilla felt a queer regret over Anne's inches. That's that one page or whatever, mm. I think is a really nice distillation of growing up <laughs> at this point yeah. in your life and the way a good the things that a good teacher does for you and, and and the way that the way that a good teacher can create an environment that allows you to grow in a really healthy way in a way that's almost that's surprising you know that you people look at it later and you're like whoa <laughs> but that doesn't happen if the seeds haven't been planted if the soil is not good and miss stacy mm-hmm. and marilla have both clearly um cr- cultivated good soil so i i personally really liked that the scene be, it includes Miss Stacy there and then ends with Marilla because I think together they're the ones that have enabled that growth in hand. Matthew too, but you know, putting Mer- Miss Stacy and Marilla together I think is a really nice nice bit there by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Mm-hmm. But, but I didn't mean to hijack your final thought there. That passage just sprang to mind when you were talking about it. And that was perfect. It was really good. You, you can keep going on it though. I just want to... No, that's them. all I had to say. Okay. <laughs> well, that would be my final thought then. Perfect. Well, next week we will talk about the end of the book, and then the next week we will do the Q and A. So, as I said, be ready with your questions. You can start emailing them to us now if you'd like. Close reads podcast at gmail.com and then we'll have the thread over on the Facebook page as well. All right. Well, with that, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you next week, and until then, happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.